as so often happens to me, I come to church with a sermon on a Sunday morning, and I hear the three readings, and I think of about ten more things that I should have <laughs> talked about, and, uh, but I won't. So, But in all three of the readings today, there is a continuation of the stories we've been listening to in the other readings. Um, we go on with King David, safely in his house in Jerusalem. And then the epistle goes on with uh, ideas about the reconciliation of faith between the Jews and the Gentiles. And then in John's Gospel, it's really a continuation of the passage we heard from Mark's Gospel last Sunday. And, and in the Old Testament readings from Samuel that we've been hearing, and as Father David has says to you, these are good stories, but I'm not so sure about today, but... Uh, every time I got ready to talk about David, I tried to say King David because I didn't want to attribute any of this <laughs> to Father David. We've seen now that God cannot be confined to a house or to an ark, even though we know that a temple will be built. However, the writer doesn't go on with that story in today's reading. The episode in today's lesson is not about the ark. Not about the temple, not about David's concern for heavenly matters, but about a very human motivation. During this whole season, we've been shown several times how imperfect material is used to achieve God's goal for humankind. And we might argue that if God is to include humans at all in the plans for salvation, then imperfection will have to be put to use. But this famous episode recounted in today's lesson seems on first reading to demonstrate that David is more than just a flawed man. He's a very questionable example of a hero. Not only does he react to lust, but he also makes sure that his legal rival is put out of the picture. And there's also his very human reaction of trying to cover his tracks. David sees Bathsheba from the roof where he is at leisure, while his army is out fighting the Ammonites. Note that he's relinquished his role as a war hero. Bathsheba is bathing on her roof, a frequently used assumed private space in that culture, and David has her seized, brought to him, and he completes his sexual conquest. Then later, when he learns that she is pregnant, he sends for her warrior husband so that he, David, will not be suspect. But Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in a wonderfully honorable display of loyalty to his troops, refuses to go home to sleep with his wife while the other soldiers are in battle. And David, who, who is, remember, the hero of much of Jewish scripture, orders Uriah into the most vulnerable place in the line of battle so that he'll be killed. Then David can take Bathsheba with the appearance of legitimacy. This behavior may in fact seem more outrageous to us than to early readers of this story. It's probably that having Uriah killed is deemed worse than David's selfish act which necessitated it. Remember, we're dealing with a culture in which a woman was property. Bathsheba is designated from the beginning as the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. In marriage, a woman moved from being the property of her father to becoming the property of her husband. It's in fact difficult to know just how this story would have been heard by the original audience. The betrayal of the loyal soldier was very likely a much greater transgression 
than the rape of that man's wife. And so David is a flawed leader. And God, however, continues to use him to move forward the story of salvation. King David has shown in the past few Sundays readings that he strives to please God, but apparently sees no disconnect between his relationship with God and his exercise of earthly power over other people. God's plan for us moves slowly in human terms. So that in the letter to the Ephesians, written by St. Paul or not, the salvation of God's people is to occur in community. The author cites the heavenly family as the model unit, and this is clearly an enormous move from the worshipful stance of a David, which shows only the one-on-one contact of a man of power with a God of power. We see here that our faith has moved in new ways of understanding human relationships. In Jesus, the fulfillment of our responsibility toward God includes our relationship with other people. The church in Ephesus is to be a model of human and divine love. The knowledge of God will lead us away from violence and into community. The whole passage is really a prayer beseeching God to grant the members of the Ephesian church such knowledge of Christ's presence that they will be rooted and grounded in love. While I was in Greece a few weeks ago, I attended the Sunday Eucharist service at the local parish. I arrived on time, and there were four other people there, plus the priest and two men who chanted the responses. About 45 people filtered in and out during the service. Most people entered, circulated the church to kiss the relic cases, lighted a candle, knelt to pray, and then left. When I commented to a Greek friend about how different this was from our services, she replied that with some surprise that one didn't need to stay in church while the whole service went on. You stayed, of course, on Easter, but otherwise... Church was a personal matter. You go in to be with God, you light a candle, you say a prayer, then you can leave. The idea of communal worship was outside her idea of church. I tried to tell her of our idea of what church was about. But she obviously believed that it should be obvious to anyone that the church in Greece had to be more authentic than the church in California. I do wonder what she would make of this passage from Ephesians. Let me um, digress. Uncharacteristically. Um, During the service, the two, I guess we'd call them cantors, and a couple of other guys went up once in a while and sang with them, but then they'd come back and wander around. They had a, a wonderful uh, lectern which was double and it was on a swivel. And so they'd turn it so that different people could read different parts. And at one point they whirled us around and a, something down at the base, which proved to be a cell phone, went flying across the floor. <laughs> and without missing a note, the man went over, picked it up, looked at it, I think to see if it was still up, put it in his pocket and came back and didn't miss a note in the, in the chanting. I... I thought it was a great display. You, you might tell Mark to uh, think of incorporating that. It adds a little <laughs> excitement. 
I must confess that after an hour, I left also. And I did light a candle. In, in the gospel last week, we heard from Mark. We heard about the return of the disciples from their mission journeys. And they had met with Jesus, reported their successes and failures. And when they tried to retreat for some rest, remember the crowds wouldn't allow it and pressed in on them and on Jesus and begging to be cured. And Jesus didn't turn them away. The people thought the spiritual food of Jesus' touch and concern We often think of religion as being most powerful when it's spiritual. But here we see not just the essence, but also the flesh and bones of Jesus' ministry. He touches people. They touch him. They follow him to be near his physical presence. And in today's gospel, the need is truly basic. The people are hungry and physically hungry, needing at this point not prayer and teaching to feed their souls and spirits, but something for their stomachs, a meal. The feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle story. In at least one gospel, it said there were 5,000 people plus women and children. (laughs) But that's a different sermon. It's a very basic human action. People are hungry. Jesus has them sit down, and he feeds them. It occurred to me when I was listening to that today that if you're going to start handing out free food, it's a good idea to have people sit down first. So they won't (laughs) besiege you. So he feeds them, and then they're They're satisfied. They can go on about their business happily. But how this miracle occurs, I'm not going to tell you today. I don't know. I've never read a satisfactory scholarly answer for this. It seems impossible. Yet it's reported by all four gospel writers. In his best-selling novel of the 1940s, The Robe, Lloyd Douglas explained that Jesus' generous act prompted all the gathered people to open their lunch packets or baskets and share what they had. Yet none of the biblical accounts mentions any such actions. In fact, in John, there's, John goes to some pains to tell us that just one boy with one lunch, which he's willing to share. Does he represent many people? We have no biblical text that says so. It becomes a great symbolic story as well as a very real story. It speaks to us with both real food and in metaphor. Jesus will provide us with what we need to live. He'll take what is available in our environment and bless it and then we can be healed and we will be fed and there will always be enough. In the ancient world, this story had great power. Having enough to eat was a problem for everyone. Here at St. Luke's, rarely do we know the power of real hunger, the, the kind that's assuaged with bread and fish. But we need to hear this story in a larger sense also. Jesus may seem sometimes to be distant, yet if we follow, if we approach him, he will heal us of wounds that we may not even know we have. 
He'll slow us down, have us sit down in his presence, and he will feed us. This week it might be useful to reflect on the plot line of today's three lessons. About King David, we learn probably more than we want to know, and perhaps more about ourselves. We all struggle with desires and plots to achieve them, and possibly our plots include disposing of the power of our rivals and then not getting caught. Like the crowds who followed Jesus, we are needy. And if we follow him and listen, we will be touched and we can rest in his presence and we will be fed. And with the members of the church in Ephesus, we can strive to reconcile differences, join in community, and commit ourselves to mutual peace and love. Amen.